Morning, everyone. Time and time again, throughout this series on Hebrews, God has been speaking to us, both individually and corporately, about his faithfulness. Even this morning, words have been coming through our time of worship, words like, stand firm, hold fast. As Naomi prayed, fix your eyes, been coming through repeatedly. Church, these are words that we simply cannot ignore. And I believe that this series in Hebrews has come at a significant time for us, both in our own personal lives and for us as a nation, when things appear shaken or things appear divided. We've heard already so far this series that the book of Hebrews was written almost or about two years before the fall of Jerusalem in approximately AD 70. It was written to Jewish Christians. So these are Jews who have now accepted Jesus as their Lord and as their Messiah. And they were facing an uncertain future. Believers who were going through great persecution, not just from the government, but also from their family and friends. People who did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. Even at that time, the world was shaking around them. And so was their faith. Many had started to drift away from the gospel and return back to their old, dead religion. Through fear of persecution, but also through the trials and temptations of life. And so the writer of Hebrews lays out with a great uh, emphasis or a great clarity why we can be full of faith, because Jesus himself is faithful. We can know a true and certain hope, even in the most testing of times. Why? Because Jesus also went through the most testing of times. We follow him, Jesus, the true and better prophet, the true and greater high priest, the true and better king. Jesus remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we pick up the story in chapter 5, verse 11 onwards. So if you have your Bibles with you, now would be a great time to turn to it where the writer delivers another warning. And this time, it's a warning against spiritual immaturity and a warning against apathy, being apathetic in the word of God. Church, there is a call to spiritual growth, that God's promises bring hope. So what is the solution to this apathy What's the solution to this immaturity? Well, it's continuing to step out in faith, holding on to the promises of God as the anchor for our soul. So let's read together Hebrews 5, verse 11 onwards. There's much more that we'd like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you're so spiritually dull and don't seem to listen You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again 
the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God. You don't need further instructions about baptisms and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. So Christians, to put that kind of passage simply, Christians who read the word and obey Jesus grow spiritually. As a parent to two children, one is seven, one's four, if I caught one of them drinking milk, from a baby bottle, I'd be concerned. I think we'd all be concerned. I think someone would probably call me up on it. What are you doing? Your children shouldn't be drinking milk from a baby's bottle anymore. And yet, many of the Jewish believers back then were still spiritual babies, drinking spiritual milk when really they should have grown up in maturity. They should have moved on to solid food. And so the writer here is calling them out, kind of saying, look, I want to talk to you more about this. I want to talk to you more about the goodness that God has. But the problem is, it's like you're drinking milk. It's like you can't cope with anything more. So what does a writer class as milk? Well, Hebrews 6 verse 1 talks about the basic teachings of Christ. His miracles, repenting from evil deeds, placing your faith in God, baptisms, the laying on of hands. Basically, Jesus' ministry here on earth. Now, all of this is important, and so the writer isn't devaluing what Jesus did on earth. Because when we first come to believe in Jesus, all of that is important. All of that's important for building up our faith. But even non Christians know the Bible stories his birth, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, turning water into wine, the cross, the resurrection. That's all head knowledge. That's what Jesus did. But no, the writer's heart here is calling out for more, calling for these, these Jewish believers, these Jewish Christians, to call out for more. To understand not just what Jesus did, but who Jesus was. 
his identity and our identity in him. And so the emphasis is not on what Jesus did, but what Jesus is doing now in heaven by his Spirit and through us. And so the first point that I want to make is that faith that motivates or faith that endures or faith that perseveres calls for spiritual growth. It's moving on from the milk to the solid food to the meat. So can I just encourage you this morning to read your Bible more. I'm not saying that you don't read your Bible. Read it more. If you only read it once a week, start developing those habits. Start getting into God's Word. Because it's important that as believers, we submit ourselves to the spiritual disciplines that God has and that God provides so that we can grow up and mature in Christ. For if we don't, we are in danger of drifting away. So if I move on to verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the good news, the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him to public shame. It's quite a, a hard passage to, uh, to digest, really, isn't it? I mean, the language in verse 4 to 5 describes someone who has once experienced the saving grace of God. While the language in verse 6 moves on, it takes it one step further and talks about someone completely disowning Jesus, completely denying their faith. It's like a deliberate and decisive rejection of Jesus. You know, they've not just fallen into sin, but they've turned their back on him. It's like they've, they've kind of denounced Jesus. And so the writer says they've become like those who have crucified him. Now, spiritual immaturity and apathy, it's not something new. We might be feeling that way today. Whether it's in our worship, we might have looked around and see people you know, giving it all for God, raising their hands in the air, praying and thinking, man, this person has clearly got their life on track. But we've seen this throughout the entirety of the Bible. From the beginning, Adam and Eve eating the fruit from a tree of life. God gave them one instruction, one command, do not eat the fruit. And they were apathetic to his, to his instruction. Abraham, or Abram as he was known, despite receiving that promise 
from God that he will multiply his descendants. He ran off. He slept with another woman, slept with Hagar, because his wife Sarah couldn't, couldn't become pregnant. David, well, David getting involved in everything that he did. Job, Job having a bit of a meltdown. Job had things stripped away from him. Family, his livelihood. And then he challenges God. And what does God say? Well, he unleashes it. Who is this that questions my wisdom? Jonah, thinking that he can outrun God, runs away. And we know that he ran away, he went on a ship, he sailed, the storm hit, he got thrown over into the sea, and got swallowed up by a whale. In Jesus' time, the disciples not putting their trust and their faith in him. It wasn't until the disciples realised who Jesus was as their Messiah did he then disclose that he was going to the cross. Something that would have a life-changing impact on not just them, but everyone who lived and everyone who died after them, including us today. So at the time that Hebrews was written, persecution was happening to both Jews and to Gentiles. So why is Hebrews written specifically to Jewish believers? Why is there this, this appeal, this warning against spiritual immaturity and apathy? Well, because at that time, Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, had a way of escaping this persecution that was not open to Gentiles. And that was to go back to the synagogue. Because at the time, if we look at the history, Christianity was illegal, but Judaism wasn't. Judaism was legal. And so churches met underground, they met in hiding, upper rooms, they met in secret, where synagogues were seen in public. So Jewish believers had that option to escape persecution. They could walk in and proclaim their faith in God, and everything would be alright, except for one thing. And that's this that they would have to publicly deny Jesus as their Messiah. That'd be in front of their family, in front of their friends, in front of their children. Imagine bringing your children along to a synagogue, knowing that you've brought them up to, to have faith in Jesus, and then having to, to be in that place where you have to escape persecution and deny deny Jesus in front of your, your children, in front of your family, in front of your friends. I mean, a modern-day version of this would be people who've converted to Jesus or converted to Christianity from different faiths, perhaps Muslims or Sikhs to Jesus, and their respective families trying to claim them back. Communities they left behind to follow Jesus now chasing them trying to convince them 
to return. Now give up this Jesus person. I see this at work too. So working in a prison, one thing that prisoners have in common is they're all prisoners. They've all been in trouble with the police. They've all committed crime. And they've all been banged up beyond a door. And sadly, for some of them, when they get out, when they get released, when they finally get that freedom, they return to their respective communities. People who are also involved in criminal activity. And so they return back to prison. Or if they have nothing outside for them, I see people who've come in by themselves connect with other prisoners. Perhaps they have the same criminal activity in common, the same offence. And so when they get released, they meet up outside with those people that they've built friendships or built relationships with. And I see them come back as co-Ds or co-defendants. It's like, hang on a minute, you were released. You had freedom. Why would you come back? It's like someone who was once a Muslim, but now a Christian, returning to a mosque and saying, no, I choose Allah over Jesus. Or someone who was once addicted to drugs, or alcohol, or money, gambling, cigarettes, or an eating disorder, or whatever it is that they've been personally set free from, saying, despite what you've done for me, Jesus, and despite the freedom that I've experienced through your death and through your resurrection, I now turn away and I now turn back to my past. It's like I'm saying, I value my life over my faith. And so the writer is urging these Jewish believers, the writer brings this warning, saying, no, no, value your faith over your life. And so this, this warning against spiritual immaturity, this warning against apathy here, comes because every day that goes past, every day that these Jewish believers don't trust in the promises of God, but they don't go back to the word of God. They don't worship, they don't pray to him, they don't use their spiritual gifts, whether it's in, a, in their homes, whether it's in their workplaces, whether it's in their communities. It's another day that these believers are denying the world of knowing who Jesus is. And this warning is relevant for us today. And it's a hard warning to bring. But this warning applies for us. It's a warning against being apathetic in the word. It's a warning against spiritual immaturity. Because every day that goes past without us opening the word, without us worshipping, without us praying to him, without us using our spiritual gifts, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our workplaces, or whether it's in our communities. It is another day where we deny the world of knowing who Jesus is. 
and the devil, the enemy, laps it up. He says, Give me, give me more of that. There's nothing that the enemy loves more than a people or a church that is apathetic in the word, a church that is spiritually immature, or a church that is filled with lukewarm Christians. And so this whole letter is urging people to a particular course of action. Yes, this warning is a bit negative, but there is an appeal here. The writer is urging people, please, please don't go back, but do go on. So the writer is saying that if we don't follow the teachings of the Bible, we will become spiritually dull. We will sway away from Jesus. We will drift away. If we don't read the Bible often enough, we'll become spiritually dull. There's no easy way of putting it. But the same is with our, with our own physical bodies too. If we don't eat, if we don't feed our bodies, we'll be hungry, won't we? We'll be constantly in hunger. And in our hunger, we often turn to food that is not right for us, that's not healthy, junk food. Now, I love a bit of junk food. If I've got a choice of eating an apple or eating a donut, Rest assured, I'm going for that donut. But what can happen is here is that sometimes we can get full on the wrong sort of food. Think about that later on today as you're tucking into your lunch, whether you're having a, a classic Sunday roast, whether you're having a, I don't know, a bit of jerk chicken, some rice and peas, some jollof rice. That's my kind of food. I love that kind of food. But if you, if you get full on that kind of food, how do you feel? You kind of sort of feel a bit bloated, don't we? Feel sluggish. We're like, oh, I just can't move. But if we're not reading the Bible enough, if we're turning to things like TV, if we're turning to the internet, if we're spending more time on social media than we are in our own Bible or in the Word of God, we are in danger of drifting away from the truth like a ship without fuel. If you imagine a ship on a sea, it could have a captain, it could have the engine, it could have passengers, it could have a destination. It can know where it wants to go. But without fuel in the tank, it is going nowhere. It will be drifted away, taken by the sea. And it is the same for our worship lives. It's the same for our prayer lives. Now, as a worship team, when we, when we practice, when we sing songs, when we choose new songs to bring... We've got to be so careful about the words that are in those songs. We've got to speak the truth. We've got to speak the promises of God. 
It's no good coming to God and worship him, worshiping him when we're not even focused on the promises that he has for us. And so if our worship or our prayer lives are not influenced by the truth of God's word, then they too become spiritually dull. And then we can become indifferent to God. And when we become indifferent to God, we can consider giving up. But here's where the shift changes. I'm going to jump to verse 9. The writer shifts from the negative to the positive. And I'm so pleased to now start focusing on positives. Verse 9 onwards says, Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you've worked for him. I love that. And I'm going to say that again. He will not forget how hard you've worked for him and how you've shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and their endurance. That is good news. That God will not forget how hard that we worked for him. That we can have an assurance that what we hope for will come true. So the second point I want to make is that having a faith that motivates or a faith that perseveres, a faith that endures, brings hope through God's promises. There is hope in the word of God. I'm going to move on to Hebrews 6, verse 13. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. Now I just want you to imagine yourselves for a second. Imagine you're in that church right now, going through that persecution for turning to Jesus. Imagine that you've been excluded from your family, from your friends, because you've, you've made that change. You've made that decision to follow Jesus. And then the promises of Jesus at that time 
just appear to disappear. We've diminished. It's like, hang on a minute. We've got this hope. Simon preached about it so brilliantly a few weeks ago. We've got this hope of a promised place of rest. And yet it means nothing. So your faith in Jesus is wavering. Considering turning back to Judaism. And so what is the writer doing by quoting Abraham? Well, actually the writer is really clever here. Because you can see that these, these Jewish Christians you can see their faith is wavering and they're wanting to turn back to Judaism. So the writer says, well, if you're turning back to Abraham, let me tell you about Abraham. And the believers may have thought, what can you possibly tell us about Abraham that we don't already know? And it's this, is that Abraham waited for the promises of God patiently. Now, if we know the story of Abraham, we know they didn't do a very good job of waiting patiently. It's a bit of a bizarre thing to write. We know when he was named as Abram, he lied. He gave up his wife, Sarah, or Sarai, as she was known, to save up his own life. His wife couldn't have children, so he slept with someone else to have a child, despite God's promise for him. He had to trust God through his circumstances. He himself was spiritually immature. He was apathetic to God's promise. And so Abram had to go on a journey. He had to go on a journey to, from spiritually immature and from being apathetic to now spiritually mature and believing in the promises that God has for him. He went on a journey to go from Abram to Abraham. And the same is for us too. We have to go on a journey. We're all on that journey in trusting, trusting that God's got it. We make a few mistakes along the way. But we persevere in order to become the person that God intended us to be. And church, that is a continual journey. Hebrews 6, verse 16 onwards. Now when people take an oath, they call to someone greater than themselves to hold it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. 
Now, the culture at that time was that when you make a promise, you also make an oath. Back then, you'd have to give up something if you couldn't meet that promise or you couldn't keep it. And we still see that kind of thing nowadays as well. I see it at work. I'm talking to prisoners. They're like, Gov, I swear on my mum's life. Or Gov, I swear on my mum's grave. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't want you swearing on your mum's life. Don't you swear on your mum's grave. Just be honest. Tell me what's happened. How has this situation occurred? Or they'll say the same back to me. Gov, promise me you do that. I'm like, no, no. I don't make promises. But what, what I will do is that I'll try and help you. And if I can't help you, then I'll, I'll try and find someone else who can. Or try and find a different time that I can sort this out for you. And so what I interpret the prisoners at work saying is, is that they're kind of swearing on something that is outside of their control. And what God does when he makes an oath is that he swears on himself because there is nothing that is outside of his control. Amen to that. So this hope that we have of promised rest, this hope that we have in our salvation, church, it is deeply promised. It is secure. It is unshakable. It is indisputable. It is a firm foundation. Church, there is hope that we have through faith in God. It cannot be shaken. It cannot and it will not pass away. It is a living hope. And why is it a living hope? Because God has sworn an oath on himself. If he goes against that oath, he's not God. And everything that has come before us, the entirety of creation, the entirety of the universe, you look around, your family, your friends, the houses you live in, the cars that you drive, the jobs that you, that you have, the kings and queens that have sat on thrones before us, the different wars, the different battles, the universe itself, the earth, Mars, Jupiter, Venus, the planets, the Milky Way, the sun, that planet that they have apparently discovered this week or last week, millions and millions of miles away, all of that will disappear. Church, if there is disunity in the Trinity, rest assured, nothing will survive. Nothing. Which is why that with each day that passes, church, no matter what your situation is, whether you're having a great time, the things couldn't be better for you. Your faith is on track. You've got a great job. You've got a great house. You've got wonderful kids. Or they've just got into their, their school like you've, you've been hoping for them to get into. Or with each day that passes, 
whether things are absolutely horrendous and you're going through unspeakable situations. I mean, incomprehensible situations. Church, we can have confidence. We can have hope. We can have faith. We can thank God. We can give him the glory. We can give him the honor. We can give him the praise because he is in control and we are not. Let me tell you a story. This week, I mean, I've had a horrendous week this week. Time that I kind of put aside to be able to write this preach, to prepare for this morning, has just disappeared. It's just gone. Getting up early to get into work, or leaving work, finishing, finishing late because of incidents, times where I've been running the prison, managing it, and through different situations and circumstances, we've had prisoners who have barricaded themselves in their cells, then they've set themselves on fire, we've dragged them out, they're not breathing, they're unconscious. By miracle of God, they're still alive. Situations where Prisoners have taken other prisoners hostage in their own cells. We've had to send prisoners out to hospital because of uh, substance misuse, through illness, with drugs, fights, violence. I mean, it has been horrendous. I only finished this preach yesterday. <laughs> um, and there have been times this week that I've kind of questioned God. I've started my day. Yes, God, please be a part of my day. Come and order my day. Come, I just really pray that I have a really great day at work. And then when all of that happens, I'm like, God, what are you doing? Have I, have I offended you? Have I, have I annoyed you in any way? I mean, you promise that you have great plans for me. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for goodness and not wickedness. They are plans to give you a future and a hope. And this week I've gone, where is my hope? And the truth is, is that my hope has never gone. That my hope is found in the promises of God. That despite my circumstances, despite having a week from weeks, just God is God. He's unchanging. He's in control. He... Church, we can have hope this morning. We can have hope in God. We can put our trust and we can put our faith in him despite our circumstances, despite what the world throws at us. And it is an unshakable hope. We can trust in him. And this hope 
as the passage goes on to say, is the hope that lies before us. And sometimes we may not be able to see it. And I think of a time a few years ago now, when I went to Mauritius. I went to Mauritius for about seven weeks in the school holidays. It was great. But getting on a plane to travel back home, the weather was stormy. It was raining. You looked out the window and all you can see is the rain. All you can hear is against the window. But as the plane, I mean, I was, to be honest, I was surprised that the plane took off, even in that weather. But as the plane takes off, and it goes higher and higher, it then goes through the clouds, and you then can't see what's going on. And you think, how on earth is the pilot steering this plane? How on earth is the pilot flying this? You can't see, you look out the window, and all you can see is just a grey mass. And then comes the moment as that plane goes up through the top of the clouds and all you see is glorious sunshine and the sky is blue. And then you look down below and you see like the, the thunder or the lightning or you can just see like the, the, the grey of a cloud. Church, can I encourage you that if you are going through these situations... You can have hope. You may not be able to see what is going on, but there is a hope that lies before us. And rest assured that even from the other side of your circumstances, that the glory of Jesus still shines. The glory of the sun is still beaming down. So let me finish on a little bit of a bit more of an encouraging note. We'll continue in Hebrews. It says that this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to learn about Melchizedek next week. But I want to talk about our hope. Our hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. If you think of what the role of an anchor is, it's the things that people in the boat turn to when the weather gets stormy when the waves start crashing up and down, when you're losing control of the ship, you throw the anchor, you turn to the anchor, and the anchor connects the boat to the seabed. And then that ship is secure. It's secure in the foundation of the seabed. Now, the anchor that we have, it's not in the ground, but it's an upward anchor. It's an anchor that is secure in the throne room of God and not in the foundation of what this world can bring. It is in the throne room of God, church. It's placed in God's control room. That is a hope. That is a, a hope to be 
I don't know, faithful in. That's an encouraging hope. We can have courage in that. There's this quote by a lady called Corrie ten Boom. Now, she's quite a famous person. This is a person who helped uh, during the Second World War, during a time where uh, Jews were being persecuted by the Nazis. She helped smuggle the Jews. She helped hide them to keep them safe, keep them away from persecution. She's, she says this, to realise the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the stress of the storm. To realise the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the stress of the storm. Church, following Jesus is hard. No one says it's easy. Constantly going against what the world says. But I want to really encourage you here. Turn to God's promises. Turn to the Bible. Read it. Read it and read it and read it. And when you think you can't get any more of it, read it again. Because it is good. It brings light to our circumstances. It speaks truth into our different situations. There are times where we're under pressure, whether that's a pressure that we put on ourselves, perhaps kind of a, a self-imposed kind of pressure. But sometimes there's a pressure that comes from God. We go through different challenging situations because he's steering us through it. He's drawing us to himself. He's helping us to grow. He's molding us and he's shaping us to be more like his son, Jesus. I want to leave you guys with some questions. I kind of call these digging deeper questions. But these are questions to ponder on. Questions to think about, perhaps with your friends, family, in your life groups. Questions like, what are you feeding yourself on? Is it the truth of God's word? Is it God's promises? Or is it the stuff around you? Are you satisfied with your current spiritual level? That's a, quite a tricky question to answer. What difference will you make to your Bible reading habits? What do you do to combat spiritual sluggishness? Perhaps today you've arrived, you've come to worship God and you're just feeling a little bit heavy, feeling a bit burdened, feeling a bit sluggish. We've got full on the things around us, our circumstances, our situations. We've allowed them to come and take control. And it's an easy thing to do. There's no shame in admitting that at all. So how can we motivate others? Because it's not just about ourselves. It's about helping each other. We're a family together. We're united together. 
Is it possible for us to lose our salvation? Oh, that's a tricky one. I've kind of touched upon it this morning. But yeah, take that question away. Discuss that in your life groups. Holiness is as necessary as forgiveness. Discuss. Again. Really tricky question to answer. How can a holy God send anyone to hell? Again, really, really, really digging deep here. I've kind of touched upon it. But again, it's something that you can take away with you. Why is love important? Again, love should be the foundation of everything that we do. What do you turn to when the storm hits? Notice I haven't written who do you turn to. I've written what do you turn to? Because again, there's no shame. I myself know sometimes when, when things, when the storm hits, I don't often turn to God straight away. I turn to other things. Where does your promise of salvation truly lie? And what sacrifices have you made to follow Jesus? Church, I realise that these are some quite deep, open questions. But I want to finish. I want to finish by talking about our hope that we have. I'll have the band back up, please. Because, church, we have a hope. We have a hope this morning, a hope that is secure, a hope that is in God and in his promises and in his word. Yes, the warning has been quite negative today. There's a warning about being apathetic. But the heart of the writer here is, please, please don't go back, but do go on. And I want to urge you this morning, church, I've said this many times before. You can come as you are, but don't leave as you are. You can leave feeling changed. You can leave being transformed. So as we worship, if you'd like to stand, I'm going to pray for us. Father God, I thank you that we have a hope that is found in you. Lord, that we have a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Lord, I thank you that we have a hope of a promised rest, that we have hope of our salvation. And I thank you, Lord, that it is secure. Jesus, I thank you that our hope is unshakable, that our hope is indisputable, Thank you that our hope is a living hope. Thank you, God, that you are in control. No matter what is going on, you are in control. And we can come and we can worship you. Amen.